History of England, Chapter 7, Part 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Accession of James II by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 7, Part 7. The great body of Protestant nonconformists, firmly attached to civil liberty and distrusting the promises of the king and of the Jesuits, steadily refused to return thanks for a favor which, it might well be suspected, concealed a snare. This was the temper of all the most illustrious chiefs of the party. One of these was Baxter. He had, as we have seen, been brought to trial soon after the accession of James, had been brutally insulted by Jeffreys, and had been convicted by a jury, such as the courtly sheriffs of those times were in the habit of selecting. Baxter had been about a year and a half in prison when the court began to think seriously of gaining the nonconformists. He was not only set at liberty, but was informed that, if he chose to reside in London, he might do so without fearing that the Five Mile Act would be enforced against him. The government probably hoped that the recollection of past sufferings and the sense of present ease would produce the same effect on him as on Roswell and Lobb. The hope was disappointed. Baxter was neither to be corrupted nor to be deceived. He refused to join in an address of thanks for the indulgence, and exerted all his influence to promote good feeling between the church and the Presbyterians. If any man stood higher than Baxter in the estimation of the Protestant dissenters, that man was John Howe. Howe had, like Baxter, been personally a gainer by the recent change of policy. The same tyranny which had flung Baxter into jail had driven Howe into banishment, and, soon after Baxter had been let out of the King's Bench prison, Howe returned from Utrecht to England. It was expected at Whitehall that Howe would exert in favor of the court all the authority which he possessed over his brethren. The king himself condescended to ask the help of the subject whom he had oppressed. Howe appears to have hesitated, but the influence of the Hamptons, with whom he was on terms of close intimacy, kept him steady to the cause of the Constitution. A meeting of Presbyterian ministers was held at his house to consider the state of affairs and to determine on the course to be adopted. There was great anxiety at the palace to know the result. Two royal messengers were in attendance during the discussion. They carried back the unwelcome news that Howe had declared himself decidedly adverse to the dispensing power, and that he had, after long debate, carried with him the majority of the assembly. To the names of Baxter and Howe must be added the name of a man far below them in station and in acquired knowledge, but in virtue their equal, and in genius their superior, John Bunyan. Bunyan had been bred a tinker, and had served as a private soldier in the parliamentary army. Early in his life he had been fearfully tortured by remorse for his youthful sins, the worst of which seem, however, to have been such as the world thinks venial. His keen sensibility and his powerful imagination made his internal conflicts singularly terrible. He fancied that he was under sentence of reprobation, that he had committed blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, that he had sold Christ, that he was actually possessed by a demon. Sometimes loud voices from heaven cried out to warn him. Sometimes fiends whispered impious suggestions in his ear. He saw visions of distant mountain-tops on which the sun shone brightly, but from which he was separated by a waste of snow. He felt the devil behind him pulling his clothes. He thought that the brand of Cain had been set upon him. He feared that he was about to burst asunder like Judas. His mental agony distorted his health. One day he shook like a man in the palsy. On another day he felt a fire within his breast. It is difficult to understand how he survived suffering so intense and so long continued. At length the clouds broke. From the depths of despair the penitent passed to a state of serene felicity. The irresistible impulse now urged him to impart to others the blessing of which he was himself possessed. He joined the Baptist, 
and became a preacher and writer. His education had been that of a mechanic. He knew no language but the English as it was spoken by the common people. He had studied no great model of composition, with the exception, an important exception undoubtedly, of our noble translation of the Bible. His spelling was bad. He frequently transgressed the rules of grammar. Yet his native force of genius, and his experimental knowledge of all the religious passions, from despair to ecstasy, amply supplied in him the want of learning. His rude oratory roused and melted hearers who listened without interest to the labored discourses of great logicians and Hebraists. His works were widely circulated among the humbler classes. One of them, The Pilgrim's Progress, was, in his own lifetime, translated into several foreign languages. It was, however, scarcely known to the learned and polite, and had been, during near a century, the delight of pious cottagers and artisans, before it was publicly commended by any man of high literary eminence. At length, critics condescended to inquire where the secret of so wide and so durable a popularity lay. They were compelled to own that the ignorant multitude had judged more correctly than the learned, and that the despised little book was really a masterpiece. Bunyan is indeed as decidedly the first of allegorists, as Demosthenes is the first of orators, or Shakespeare the first of dramatists. Other allegorists have shown equal ingenuity, but no other allegorist has ever been able to touch the heart and to make abstractions objects of terror, of pity, and of love. It may be doubted whether any English dissenter had suffered more severely under the penal laws than John Bunyan. Of the twenty-seven years which had elapsed since the Restoration, he had passed twelve in confinement. He still persisted in preaching, but, that he might preach, he was under the necessity of disguising himself like a carter. He was often introduced into meetings through back doors, with a smock-frock on his back and a whip in his hand. If he had thought only of his own ease and safety, he would have hailed the indulgence with delight. He was now, at length, free to pray and exhort in open day. His congregation rapidly increased. Thousands hung upon his words. And at Bedford, where he ordinarily resided, money was plentifully contributed to build a meeting-house for him. His influence among the common people was such that the government would willingly have bestowed on him some municipal office, but his vigorous understanding and his stout English heart were proof against all delusion and all temptation. He felt assured that the proffered toleration was merely a bait intended to lure the Puritan party to destruction, nor would he, by accepting a place for which he was not legally qualified, recognize the validity of the dispensing power. One of the last acts of his virtuous life was to decline an interview to which he was invited by an agent of the government. Great as was the authority of Bunyan with the Baptists, that of William Kiffin was still greater. Kiffin was the first man among them in wealth and station. He was in the habit of exercising his spiritual gifts at their meetings, but he did not live by preaching. He traded largely. His credit on the exchange of London stood high, and he had accumulated an ample fortune. Perhaps no man could, at that conjuncture, have rendered more valuable service to the court, but between him and the court was interposed the remembrance of one terrible event. He was the grandfather of two of the Hewlings, those gallant youths who, of all the victims of the bloody assizes, had been the most generally lamented. For the sad fate of one of them, James was in a peculiar manner responsible. Jeffreys had respited the younger brother. The poor lad's sister had been ushered by Churchill into the royal presence, and had begged for mercy. But the king's heart had been obdurate. The misery of the whole family had been great. But Kiffin was most to be pitied. He was seventy years old when he was left desolate, the survivor of those who should have survived him. 
the heartless and venal sycophants of Whitehall, judging by themselves, thought that the old man would be easily propitiated by an alderman's gown, and by some compensation in money for the property which his grandsons had forfeited. Penn was employed in the work of seduction, but to no purpose. The king determined to try what effect his own civilities would produce. Kiffin was ordered to attend at the palace. He found a brilliant circle of noblemen and gentlemen assembled. James immediately came to him, spoke to him very graciously, and concluded by saying, "'I have put you down, Mr. Kiffin, for an alderman of London.' The old man looked fixedly at the king, burst into tears, and made answer, "'Sir, I am worn out. I am unfit to serve your majesty or the city. And, sir, the death of my poor boys broke my heart. That wound is as fresh as ever. I shall carry it to my grave.' The king stood silent for a minute in some confusion, and then said, "'Mr. Kiffin, I will find a balsam for that sore.' Assuredly, James did not mean to say anything cruel or insolent. On the contrary, he seems to have been in an unusually gentle mood, yet no speech that is recorded of him gives so unfavorable a notion of his characters as these few words. They are the words of a hard-hearted and low-minded man, unable to conceive any laceration of the affections for which a place or a pension would not be a full compensation." That section of the dissenting body which was favorable to the king's new policy had from the first been a minority, and soon began to diminish, for the nonconformists perceived in no long time that their spiritual privileges had been abridged rather than extended by the indulgence. The chief characteristic of the Puritan was abhorrence of the peculiarities of the Church of Rome. He had quitted the Church of England only because he conceived that she too much resembled her superb and voluptuous sister, the sorceress of the golden cup and of the scarlet robe. He now found that one of the implied conditions of that alliance which some of his pastors had formed with the court was that the religion of the court should be respectfully and tenderly treated. He soon began to regret the days of persecution. While the penal laws were enforced, he had heard the words of life in secret and at his peril, but still he had heard them. When the brethren were assembled in the inner chamber, when the sentinels had been posted, when the doors had been locked, when the preacher, in the garb of a butcher or a drayman, had come in over the tiles, then, at least, God was truly worshipped. No portion of divine truth was suppressed or softened down for any worldly object. All the distinctive doctrines of the Puritan theology were fully, and even coarsely, set forth. To the Church of Rome no quarter was given. The beast, the Antichrist, the man of sin, the mystical Jezebel, the mystical Babylon were the phrases ordinarily employed to describe that august and fascinating superstition. Such had been once the style of Alsop, of Lobb, of Rosewell, and of other ministers who had, of late, been well received at the palace. But such was now their style no longer. Divines who aspired to a high place in the king's favor and confidence could not venture to speak with asperity of the king's religion. Congregations therefore complained loudly that, since the appearance of the declaration which purported to give them entire freedom of conscience, they had never once heard the gospel boldly and faithfully preached. Formerly they had been forced to snatch their spiritual nutriment by stealth, but, when they had snatched it, they had found it seasoned exactly to their taste. They were now at liberty to feed, but their food had lost all its savor. They met by daylight, and in commodious edifices but they heard discourses far less to their taste than they would have heard from the rector. At the parish church the will-worship and idolatry of Rome were every Sunday attacked with energy, but at the meeting-house the pastor, who had a few months before reviled the established clergy as little better than papists, now carefully abstained from censuring popery, or conveyed his censures in language too delicate to shock even the ears of Father Petra. 
nor was it possible to assign any credible reason for this change. The Roman Catholic doctrines had undergone no alteration. Within living memory, never had Roman Catholic priests been so active in the work of making proselytes, never had so many Roman Catholic publications issued from the press, never had the attention of all who cared about religion been so closely fixed on the dispute between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants. What could be thought of the sincerity of theologians who had never been weary of railing at popery when popery was comparatively harmless and helpless, and who now, when a time of real danger to the Reformed faith had arrived, studiously avoided tittering one word which could give offence to a Jesuit? Their conduct was indeed easily explained. It was known that some of them had obtained pardons. It was suspected that others had obtained money." their prototype might be found in that weak apostle who from fear denied the master to whom he had boastfully professed the firmest attachment or in that baser apostle who sold his lord for a handful of silver thus the dissenting ministers who had been gained by the court were rapidly losing the influence which they had once possessed over their brethren on the other hand the sectaries found themselves attracted by a strong religious sympathy towards those prelates and priests of the church of england who spite of royal mandates of threats and of promises were waging vigorous war with the church of rome the anglican body and the puritan body so long separated by a mortal enmity were daily drawing nearer to each other and every step which they made towards union increased the influence of him who was their common head William was in all things fitted to be a mediator between these two great sections of the English nation. He could not be said to be a member of either, yet neither, when in a reasonable mood, could refuse to regard him as a friend. His system of theology agreed with that of the Puritans. At the same time, he regarded episcopacy not indeed as a divine institution, but as a perfectly lawful and eminently useful form of church government. Questions respecting postures, robes, festivals, and liturgies he considered as of no vital importance. A simple worship, such as that to which he had been early accustomed, would have been most to his personal taste. But he was prepared to conform to any ritual which might be acceptable to the nation, and insisted only that he should not be required to persecute his brother Protestants, whose consciences did not permit them to follow his example. Two years earlier he would have been pronounced by numerous bigots on both sides as a mere Laodician, neither cold nor hot, and fit only to be spewed out. But the zeal which had inflamed churchmen against dissenters, and dissenters against churchmen, had been so tempered by common adversity and danger, that the lukewarmness which had once been imputed to him as a crime was now reckoned among his chief virtues. All men were anxious to know what he thought of the Declaration of Indulgence. For a time, hopes were entertained at Whitehall that his known respect for the rights of conscience would at least prevent him from publicly expressing disapprobation of a policy which had a specious show of liberality. Penn sent copious disquisitions to The Hague, and even went thither in the hope that his eloquence, of which he had a high opinion, would prove irresistible. But, though he harangued on his favorite theme with a copiousness which tired his hearers out, and though he assured them that the approach of a golden age of religious liberty had been revealed to him by a man who was permitted to converse with angels, no impression was made on the prince. "'You ask me,' said William to one of the king's agents, "'to countenance an attack on my own religion. I cannot with a safe conscience do it, and I will not. No, not for the crown of England, nor for the empire of the world.' These words were reported to the king and disturbed him greatly. He wrote urgent letters with his own hand. Sometimes he took the tone of an injured man. He was the head of the royal family. He was as such entitled to expect the obedience of his younger branches, and it was very hard that he was to be crossed in a matter on which his heart was set. At other times a bait which was thought irresistible was offered. If William would but give way on this one point, 
the English government would, in return, cooperate with him strenuously against the French. He was not to be so deluded. He knew that James, without the support of a parliament, would, even if not unwilling, be unable to render effectual service to the common cause of Europe, and there could be no doubt that, if a parliament were assembled, the first demand of both houses would be that the declaration should be cancelled. The princess assented to all that was suggested by her husband. Their joint opinion was now conveyed to the king in firm but temperate terms. They declared that they deeply regretted the course which his majesty had adopted. They were convinced that he had usurped a prerogative which did not by law belong to him. Against that usurpation they protested, not only as friends to civil liberty, but as members of the royal house, who had a deep interest in maintaining the rights of that crown which they might one day wear. For experience had shown that, in England, arbitrary government could not fail to produce a reaction even more pernicious than itself, and it might reasonably be feared that the nation, alarmed and incensed by the prospect of despotism, might conceive a disgust even for the constitutional monarchy. The advice, therefore, which they tendered to the king, was that he would in all things govern according to law. They readily admitted that the law might with advantage be altered by competent authority, and that some part of his declaration well deserved to be embodied in an act of parliament. They were not persecutors. They should with pleasure see Roman Catholics, as well as Protestant dissenters, relieved in a proper manner from all penal statutes. They should with pleasure see Protestant dissenters admitted in a proper manner to civil office. At that point their highnesses must stop. They could not but entertain grave apprehensions that, if Roman Catholics were made capable of public trust, great evil would ensue, and it was intimated not obscurely that these apprehensions arose chiefly from the conduct of James. The opinion expressed by the prince and princess respecting the disabilities to which the Roman Catholics were subject was that of almost all the statesmen and philosophers who were then zealous for political and religious freedom. In our age, on the contrary, enlightened men have often pronounced with regret that, on this one point, William appears to disadvantage when compared to his father in law. The truth is that some considerations which are necessary to the forming of a correct judgment seem to have escaped the notice of many writers of the nineteenth century. End of part seven.